This is episode 139, Mind to Matter, with Dr. Dawson Church. My name is Tudor Alexander, and this is the Dance of Life podcast. Every week, my goal is to inspire you to take action towards what you love, live a transformed life, and enjoy the journey there. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome. Happy Friday. Happy Monday, Tuesday, whatever day it happens to be for you. I have an amazing, amazing guest to share with you. But first, we're going to get it started here with the OG spiritual gangster himself, Buddha. I love this quote. It says, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. And that was, of course, by the Buddha today, we're talking about mind to matter. My amazing, amazing guest is Dr. Dawson Church. He's an award-winning author, best-selling author of The Genie in Your Genes. He's just celebrating his release of the book, Mind to Matter, which we're going to be breaking down today a little bit. He's founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare. He's published in several prestigious scientific journals. He's the editor of Energy Psychology, blogger for Huffington Post, and so many many wonderful things. Hello, sir. How are you? Welcome to the show. <laughs> you know, great to be here. And if this conversation is even half as interesting as the one we were having off air earlier, it's going to be. Something. It's going to be awesome. Man, I, I'll tell you, like, we have so much to talk about. I just want to jump right into it. You know, you're celebrating your book, uh, The Mind to Matter. Give us a little bit of an idea of what it is and, you know, what motivated you to, to kind of release it. You started with the genie with your genes. That's what's huge about emotions and epigenetics. Kind of share with us a little bit about this book and why, you know, why it got created. What, what's, the, what's the thing behind it? Yeah, well, Genie Near Genes was shortly after 2000 and research into epigenetics really got going. And epigenetics is the science of how our gene expression is triggered by factors outside the chromosome, outside the DNA, and they can actually trigger the expression of genes. And there was lots of evidence for this initially from outside sources like nutrition. So taking certain uh, nutritional compounds could trigger gene expression. But it was really powerful when we first realized that gene expression would be triggered from, from the outside. The big insight I had with that book was that it wasn't just mechanical factors that were triggering gene expression epigenetically. It was emotional and spiritual experiences. So I wrote about that, that in the book. That was my big insight back then. There was no experimental evidence at all that that was happening when I first wrote the book. But there was lots of inferential evidence. Like, for example, just a simple example, when we get uh, upset or angry or emotionally triggered, we make lots of adrenaline, we make lots of cortisol. So here, an abstract emotion an intangible thing like an emotional experience is resulting in a molecule. And then after I wrote the book, the first studies began to appear. By the time of the second edition, there were 13 studies showing that. By the time of the third edition, there were so many hundreds, I might, might pick of which ones to cite. And then I began to think about, you know, if our intangible experiences like meditation, like acupressure, like um, energy therapies, like a walk in nature, a walk in the woods, if all of these are triggering gene expression, how far can the process go? If we can create molecules inside our own bodies internally, can we create effects 
in the world outside of ourselves? Mm. And so the answer is, is twofold. Yes, we can. <clears throat> Absolutely, we can, do, we can create things in the world outside of ourselves with our minds. And no, we can't. We cannot create things outside of, of, our, of, our, of ourselves in obvious ways. I mean, I can't suddenly sit here and imagine that there's a 35-story high-rise in the car park outside my office, and it's, it's there. That is impossible, and people who believe those things are possible, they get locked up in padded cells. <laughs> <laughs> but I can do things like, you know, I was hungry a while ago, so I manifested a couple, a couple of times. <laughs> we, 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 we can do those things. That was so, some pretty uh, quick manifestation. <laughs> manifestations. And you aren't going to say, Dawson, you're, you're a genius. You, you manifested two fried eggs. I watched you do that. <laughs> so, so what's the middle ground? And what, what realistically can we create with our minds? And what does science tell us? Not what I think, not just what I, what I imagine, what I speculate about. But I love people's opinions and speculations, and everyone has them. But science gives us hard answers, numerical answers, quantifiable answers. And you don't leave a whole bunch of things you could be creating with your mind uncreated because you don't, you don't know it's possible. So Mind to Matter was the logical extension of Gene in your genes hmm. because it then showed that actually it, it, it's it's with science it shows how exactly how we do this and to what extent we can do this if we utilize those abilities fully no it's an amazing book i mean really well done and like we we're just talking off the air even though it's packed with science it's so relatable and the way that you convey the information i think it's like man you really get these stories and these case studies and it's phenomenal. I mean, some of the stuff that you kind of mentioned about the, at least like I said, I'm halfway through it, but the ones that I have heard, like with the cancer and the remission and stuff, I mean, like that's just crazy, you know? So it makes you, the, the next logical question for me is, okay, you start to see the evidence, you see the science, you believe it, you're like, okay, now how can I hack this? <laughs> how can I, that's the, you know, how can we, how can we put this, you know, like if, okay, if I'm feeling tired, like say I wake up in the morning and we all do, you know, we have cycles throughout our days and, how can I hack my, my biology, my brains, my epigenetics, all this stuff so I can be the top performer, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a business person, a mom, busy mom, how can we do that? You know, what is the, what is the formula? <laughs> that's the next question, right? Well, that's, so. that's definitely the question you want to ask yourself. How can I hack this and how can I take advantage of these abilities? What is um, not feasible and what is feasible and how can I apply this in my life? And the sad thing, Tudor, is that most people spend their lives living in a tiny fraction of their potential. Mm. They have huge potential to create. They could create all kinds of things, and they don't know they, they can do that, and they don't believe they can do it, and so they wind up just living in one tiny fragment of their, their lives. And then, you know, when they die, I mean, we're all going to die someday. When you're 99 years old, or when you're 72 years old, or whatever it is you're going, and that, that may be tomorrow, it may be 100 years from now, but um, if, you have, if you have this gift of life, and you've left a big chunk of it undone, those are the regrets people have when they're dying. And so I wanted to really, really bring this home to people, is do you have this life? And whether you're 60 years old, whether you're 90 years old, whether you're 70 years old, whatever age you're at, it's worth living it fully and being the magnificent creator you can be. And we now watch people, and again, the, the book is also packed with stories of people. Yeah, and one yeah. of the I, 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 I've been telling lately, I actually met, saw this woman just a week ago, uh, but she was diagnosed with stage four terminal, I mean, serious metastasized cancer, just uh, 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 within 
within a short time period, she was, she was diagnosed with a large solid tumor on her right breast and was measured at two inches across, big, wow. big tumor. And they also then began to look for evidence that it had left the site, the cancer left the site of the primary tumor and was traveling throughout her body. And they found it because the tumor was on her right breast and they found that all of the lymph nodes under her right armpit were full wow. of cancer. And when, when tumor gets into your lymph system, it's like getting into your bloodstream. It yeah. All over your body. They also found three spots of inflammation on her right lung. And when she got the diagnosis at a big prestigious medical center called the MD Anderson Cancer Clinic in Houston, the, the oncologist said, Beth, this is so serious. I want you to go straight from my office today to the radiation department to start radiotherapy immediately today. And Beth said, you know, I need time to step back, I need time to look at this, I need time to think, I need time to really reflect first. And what Beth decided to do is rather than going to radiotherapy or chemotherapy or any of the above, she said, energy, I know I'm a being of energy, I'm a being of light, I'm a being of, 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 of that, that can be one with the cosmos and one with, 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 with my awareness merging with the universe. I'm going I'm to see what energy can do. So she began to focus on all the energy leverage point she had. She began to do qigong regularly. She phoned me up and she said, she was in a panic one day, she said, Doris, I've had a gene test and they've, it shows that I have eight defective genes that predispose me to breast cancer. And I said, Beth, you may have eight defective genes, but you have 24,000 genes total in your cells. That means you have 23,992, but it is just fine. Let's work with those. So we did, we did some remote work with her. She got energy healing like Joe Ray and Reiki, hands-on healing like that. She cleaned up her diet. She cleaned up. She got rid of all the stress in her life. She turned off her alerts on her cell phone, quit watching the news, filled her life with positive people, mm. positive energy. So she got this diagnosis in March of 2017. She went back to MD Anderson eight weeks later in May of 2017. And in just eight weeks, just those two months, the cancer tumor had shrunk from five centimeters, two inches across to 1.4 centimeters. Wow. All the lymph nodes under her right armpit were completely clear. So in eight weeks, that's what happened with Beth. She did a blood test. They showed not a case of cancer in her body. Now it's more than two years later, she is completely cancer-free. So that's the power of energy to create matter in our bodies. And so I have many stories in the book right? I show you, whether it's your money, whether it's your love life, whether it's your health, whether it's your weight, whether it's a disease, your ability to shift your consciousness can have enormous effects on your body. And if you're just living in one little tiny subset which says, I'm going to find a pill or a surgery or an outside authority to tell me how to live my life, I mean, those things, you may need a pill, you may need surgery, but use energy. See what potential energy has to radically affect your life and your consciousness, your spiritual life. All of these things are leverage points over your material world to an enormous degree. And most people are living as though the material life is everything, is the whole story. It's really just a tiny part of the story. The big story is our consciousness, our energy fields, and those invisible aspects of ourselves that connect us to the whole universe. Yeah, I mean, I think it returns us to an empowered state in the sense that you have control over what you can control. You know, we were talking earlier about the 
the source of the, you know, the, the idea that consciousness is the source of everything else. It's not all these random bits in the universe and they suddenly kind of randomly merge into this conscious brain. Rather, consciousness is an inherent property to everything around us. And somehow, you know, we're starting to realize that through, you know, all these old things that have been around for two thousands of years. Now we're proving them through science uh, that consciousness is the source. And if that's true, then, you know, your brain, like you were saying, is a transceiver that can connect into that universal state. You know, all this stuff that traditionally was woo-woo, you know, and, and spiritual now is actually uh, science, you know, so that's, that's fascinating. But, you know, most people are so, like, what do you think is, you know, these days, I, I talk about this a lot, and, and what I, I tend to find is this, as we're growing with technology, as we're growing with, you know, communication opportunities, things like this, I see the world increasingly dividing into two uh, particular populations. One of them are people who are educated, empowered, taking control and things like this because of all this new technology. The other side, it's a lot easier to become distracted and and forget your human potential. I mean, we have we are like walking, you know, amazing machines, you know, consciousness batteries, universal transformers, but I think that there is a a lot of pull towards this just constant distraction, you know, through whatever, watching Netflix all day, nothing against Netflix, but, you know, drinking diet soda, all these things that we just kind of, uh, like you said, use, you know, 5% of our potential. So what is, I mean, what is the main obstacle to people? Like, what do they need to get to be able to um, snap out of it? And it's like Plato's cave, you know, that whole state of ignorance that, uh, that we're just trapped in this comfort. Like, what is the main obstacle that we need to overcome to, to get people to, to kind of start seeing this stuff. And I mean, obviously the book is a huge thing that you've done. I think that's great. So. That's but, a fabulous question, Tudor. What do you, what do you have, we have to do? And it's what we pay attention to. So most people get up in the morning and the first thing they do is they pick up their phone and they check social media, they check mm. emails, they check their alerts. And uh, something, I'm trying to remember the actual numbers from the study I read. I, I don't have it in the book, but I don't have it, have it in the top of my head either. But it's something like 66% of people are checking their cell phones within the first like 15 minutes after they, they wake up in the morning. Mm. So what you're now doing is you're flooding your consciousness with news of the world very little of it good. There's not a lot of positive stuff out there. And even the positive stuff, like I, I have my own favorite things I, I like looking at, like science news and news about the environment. But I can, if I go down that rabbit hole, it's not negative, but it's, it's a distraction. Yeah, you get now distracted. I, yeah, and I, I give myself an endless supply of distractions. So then your consciousness and your mind and then your brain is being driven by factors from the outside world, from what other people want you to know, not internally generated. And so mm. that orientation is one of, I'm gonna fill my awareness with stuff from out there. What I argue in Mind Matter is that is exactly what you don't wanna do. You do not want to hand over control of your mind and your consciousness, your mental processes to somebody out there. You want to have control of your mental processes internally. And the way you do that is you pay attention but to different things. So rather than focusing your attention externally, you focus your attention internally. And so now you wake up in the morning and you close your eyes, sit up in bed, close your eyes, and you tune in to the universe. You tune in to the great symphony of being, the great symphony of nature. You tune in 
and let go of your local mind and your local self, your local worries, local preoccupations, and tune into non-local mind. Mm. And so I start my book, Mind to Matter, with the whole idea of non-local mind, and I end the book, Mind to Matter, with non-local mind. And everything, everything in between is bringing you into that arc of connection with non-local mind. When you do that, now you're using your power of attention to pay attention to the universe, to messages from out there, to the sense of well-being that exists out there. It is a beautiful, amazing, benevolent universe we live in. And when we let go of our clinging to local mind, my name is Dawson Church. I am in my 60s. I'm wearing a red shirt. I am a researcher. I'm a writer. I have an email inbox that's really way too full <laughs> and all this stuff just yammering yammering away in your head uh that's what pe most people are are paying attention to is to local reality it's fine you need to do that i mean i need to be able to get from one end of town to the other and stop at the stop signs i need to pay attention to local reality but i don't need to pay attention to local reality all the time and giving yourself that 15 minutes 30 minutes 45 minutes in the morning of tuning to non-local reality that's where I find love. That's where I find compassion. The Buddha talked about compassion. The Buddha talked about love. The Buddha talked about these ways of being in the world. And if you attune yourself there and orient yourself up to non the non-local universe first, then that conditions your consciousness and all kinds of things then start to happen externally in your outside world based on that orientation. So the, the most critical thing we can do is pay attention. But the attention we pay is to the non-local reality field in which we live, tune into that first of all, then you'll find local reality creates itself around you. Whatever you do, don't plug into stuff outside of yourself, even if it's beneficial stuff early in the day. Give yourself that time to orient yourself and condition your mind with all of the power and the joy and the peace and the kindness and the sense of well-being that you'll find with that connection with non-local mind. That's the absolutely very first thing I believe every single person should be doing every day. And that is also the source of profound change in the world outside of yourself. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, one of the things I, I often relate to this it, through a metaphor is like a hurricane. You know, you have the eye of the storm, which is kind of that stillness inside, which around it is all the duality and movement and world and identity and here I am and, and stuff. And so we, like you said, the moment that you, your awareness is independent, it can jump in the storm and it can come back to that stillness and, and be tuned into that non-local mind. And then, like you said, I think we, we tend to get pulled into the storm and then we get convinced that we are in there and limited and in this dangerous world and bouncing around. You know, I was going to ask you, do you have a particular uh, priming exercise that you do in the morning? Like, do you have, like, let's say, you know, you're, okay, so this is a two-part question. First one is, in the, do you have a particular thing that you do in the morning to kind of, you know, routine? Like, I have a lot of little gratitude priming that I do in the morning. I go through a series of visualization stuff to kind of just get myself going, do some breathing. Um, so that's number one. The second part question is, let's say, okay, you do your priming, you know, you, you got your morning started, you're, you go back to that inbox and your email and you got a ton of <laughs> stress coming up. What do you do? Like, what is your, what is your method to get back to? Cause really what we're talking about is coherence. You know, this is, this is something we can bring up because you mentioned this a lot in the book and I think it's a phenomenal idea to kind of get yourself present to, but how do you get yourself back to that coherent state? You know, so in the morning, what do you do? And then throughout the day, 
if something's taking you off, which inevitably it will, how do you, you know, what's your rule? Like, what's your life rule? Like, okay, I'm not going to be pissed off for more than two minutes or I'm not going to, you know, whatever, like I'm going to take a break and go find 10 minutes of stillness, walk outside to kind of interrupt my program. Like, what is your, how do you manage that in the morning and also uh, throughout the day to kind of get yourself back? Yeah. And those are two different questions, two different practices. And you need both. You need that yeah. orientation to the day. Then you need something which will bring you back on track when you've got off track. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, your gratitude practice is a wonderful one because um, as I'm looking deeper into the most efficient kind of meditation, gratitude definitely moves the needle in terms of brain activation quicker than anything else except compassion. Compassion and gratitude move the needle quicker than other kinds of meditation, like watching your thoughts, like watching your breath. So there are, like, there, there are seven different styles of meditation, but the two that really move the needle quickest in terms of brain activation are gratitude and, and compassion. So have your own little routine. My personal one is I developed a practice about 12 years ago called eco-meditation, ECO meditation. And it combines acupressure, which is good for stress release, release with heart math, with self-hypnosis, with neurofeedback, biofeedback, and with mindfulness. It's just a little, little series of seven steps you do. So you breathe a certain way, you sit in a certain posture, you relax certain muscles, and essentially you're sitting there mimicking the physiology of a master meditator. You're simply sitting there and you are arranging your body the way uh, an adept who done, say, 20,000 lifetime hours of meditation would be sitting, would be breathing. When you do that, when you mimic that physiology of the master meditator, powerful things happen. And certain neurochemicals are released in your brain. You have a shift in brain function. Your prefrontal cortex shifts function. Your parietal lobe that locates you in space shifts in function. All kinds of interesting things happen inside your brain and then start happening in your body. So that's number one, is to orient yourself in that way first thing in the morning. And then I, I use a seek meditation routine. Uh, thousands of people are using this now. We've been amazed to discover that we're getting something like, I don't know, 300,000 um, people now a year just finding eco-meditation spontaneously wow. online. We've never advertised it. We've never run a Facebook ad or a Google campaign or anything for it. But over a quarter of a million people now are just spontaneously finding that ecomeditation.com site, going there, trying it. Often they're just reading the instructions. And uh, one woman, for example, said she just stumbled on the, on the site, read the instructions, did it. And after many years of trying to do meditation and failing, suddenly she was just by step three, just in bliss. So uh, that's the first thing to do is to orange yourself that way every morning. But then you get to work and there's that terrifying <laughs> emails in your, in your inbox or, or say you've got a, a phone call, that message, uh, voicemail from an angry client or a, a family member who's in distress or something that's going to trigger you emotionally. That's where I have people use acupressure in the form of EFT tapping, which is simply tapping on acupuncture points like this as you think about stressful events. And research using MRIs and EEG shows that when you think about the bad stuff, and again, we're, we're not talking about people with a big inbox like I have. We're talking about to, to go to the most extreme example, um, kids in Rwanda whose parents were killed in the 1994 genocide there. And they're, they've now had, they have 20 years plus of PTSD 
they're tapping and the PTSD is going away. Wow. The veterans who've had PTSD, who've had flashbacks and nightmares. One young man that I, I worked with, uh, he'd done four tours of duty in, in Iraq. And he would hear the sound of a plastic water bottle being crushed or crunched or a can being crushed, crunched up. He would dive undercover because he thought it was, it sounded him, him like small arms fire. This mm. guy had sky high levels of hypervigilance, other PTSD symptoms. They just went away after tapping. So what we have people do is if you get disturbed by things that happen during the day or past memories like of a traumatic event in your childhood, that's when you tap. So the, the, those two meditations, meditation in the morning, tapping during the day, I feel are the two that are essential to clearing those emotional kinds of issues that come up. There are plenty of others too, and I have about 30 in mind to matter. Things like grounding, things like gratitude, which you mentioned earlier, time and nature. There are lots of other techniques, but the two that I believe are really, really efficient and foundational are eco-meditation in the morning and then tapping during the day. And the, the tapping, that's just to clarify, those are those acupressure points. So what is the, I mean, what's the connection, you know, as we kind of, because I want to talk about the coherence, like getting in a coherent mental state and how that relates to all this, you know, creating and things that we've been talking about. But, you know, the tapping helps you go from an incoherent state, essentially, when you're triggered and emotional and, and you know, your hormones are out of whack, your heart brain, uh, you know, rhythm is out of whack that's an incoherent state that's associated all the diseases, all the problems that we have. So when you tap and you stimulate those acupressure points, what exactly is going on? Like what's the relationship between that and getting us back into, let's say a peaceful state. Cause it's very effective. I mean, a couple minutes you do that. I, I've actually been trying, I looked up your uh, tapping routine, the different seven points and uh, I've been trying it. It's interesting because I even found uh, I've only been doing it for a couple of days now, but I even found like, like the way I'll do it right now, I'll have to look at that eco meditation, but I'll go through the tapping. I'll tap my uh, different points. And while I'm doing that, I just say the words that come to my mind that, that my body needs. So for example, if I'm tired, I'll feel like, okay, creativity, energy, you know, I just like let it kind of flow. And I notice that it, I do feel different, which is very interesting. So what exactly is the, what's going on? Like, let's say from a science perspective, that we're getting into that coherence. All right. So you have a memory and the part of your brain that handles memory, then will, if it's an emotional memory, it'll then activate the emotional centers of the brain. And that's the limbic system in the middle part of the brain. The midbrain or limbic system is the part of the brain that handles emotion. So you have a, have a memory. Now, if you have a neutral memory, thinking about, about putting broccoli on your shopping list, that is not activating your, your emotional midbrain. But if you're having a memory or a thought about a feared event in the future or some event in the past that hurt you, maybe you, had a, maybe you have to drive to the store to get broccoli and you had a car crash two years ago and you have PTSD from the car crash. So just the thought of driving is able to trigger a panic attack or, or bring you close to panic. So now a thought is producing an emotion. And in the MRI, what that shows up as is intense activation of the emotional brain, the amygdala, hippocampus, thalamus, hypothalamus, all of these midbrain structures are highly active. And so they're like glowing Christmas tree bulbs in the middle of your brain. Mm -hmm. When you tap, it is so interesting what happens. So the act of tapping on those seven points, and they're the end points of acupuncture meridians, I'm tapping a few of them now. When you tap on these points, then that sends another signal to your brain that is telling your brain that you're safe. So 
if you tap like this, it, set, it, it tells your emotional midbrain, there's nothing to worry about. There's no, no, no problem here. And so your brain is now getting two contradictory signals. One is car, have a panic attack from your memories of the accident. A second one is now everything's fine, you're safe, I'm tapping on acupressure points. Because if I was in the middle of a car crash, I would not be doing this. I would not be soothing myself by tapping these acupuncture points. So mm -hmm. these send signals immediately to the emotional brain. One of them telling the emotional midbrain to go into fight or flight, make lots of adrenaline, make lots of cortisol. The second one telling the emotional midbrain, hey, everything's okay. I'm tapping, I'm calm, I feel good. So you tap on those points, the brain gets these two signals, and essentially the soothing one cancels out the emotionally triggering fight or flight memory. And so once that happens one time, the cool thing is we've done this now with over 20,000 veterans through our Veteran Stress Project. We've done this, we've done total, me and my colleagues have done seven randomized controlled trials. And we've also done this with over 20,000 veterans in real time in, in live sessions. And we find that when we do this with people, not only do their memories go away, like, like one guy, this terrible memory of the day, his best friend had been killed in Vietnam, and they'd been, been on patrol together, his best friend had been shot by a sniper. He tried to rescue him. He'd won a Purple Heart for doing his, his best, but his, his friend died. And he had been haunted by this memory for 40 years since Vietnam. Wow. And then one day he told his, his therapist about this. His therapist tapped with him, and his, 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 his totally all that, that emotion went away. He still remembered the friend. He was still sad about his friend's death, but it was no longer this PTSD-type triggering fight-or-flight thought in his mind. And the cool thing is, he went down to, to just complete calm around that, that time in the therapist's office. And when he was tested again a week later, a month later, and a year later, he was still totally emotionally neutral about it. Didn't, oh. didn't change in the past. His friend still died, but he was no longer having that he stress response. charge. Right. You have the charge of the, that emotion. Yeah. So, well, so that's interesting. So basically... Not only is that tap, and we'll I'll put a link for the for the for the actual points for people to to go in there and tap. They're pretty simple. But the question is, not only is this a a, a management tool that you can use. Let's say let's say something is happening in the present moment, like you're you're getting triggered, like you said, somebody emails you, whatever you're in a fight with somebody, uh, and you're feeling those emotions. You can use this quick technique to kind of immediately dissolve that to help yourself get back to center faster. But on top of that, what you're saying basically is that you can also, you know, like those situations that happened in the past, in a sense, this reminds me, God, so much to talk about. God, I have a friend who does um, this very interesting trauma release method. And I just talked to him, I just interviewed him actually, like two weeks ago, I think three weeks ago for the show. And, uh, and this will tie in, but the way this works, you know, and I'm summarizing it, but basically they recreate like every memory that we have, every, you know, traumatic memory, like you said, there's like, I guess, four ways that we encode it, like every memory. And that's, you know, like, I forget what they are exactly, but I think it's one of them is what did you feel like? Where, what space were you in? What were you saying to yourself? You know, like there has, there's four basically like components of every memory in consciousness. And so the way this method works is that, you know, he allows you to recreate this experience based on those four things because it gets it as real as possible. And then, you know, they work through it, you know, and they've had amazing results with PTSD people. So now how this ties into what, what we were just talking about, 
on top of this being a, a, a stress management technique just for everyday stuff, what it seems like is that you can take somebody with some serious, you know, issues like PTSD, like you said, that guy who lost his friend and by tapping while you're kind of recreating that experience or having those feelings again, you are removing in that association. Like the, obviously the memory is still there, but the, the trigger and the emotions and, and the charge are dissolved. Right. So that's a phenomenal therapeutic method. <laughs> yeah. The content is still there, but it's no longer tagged with an emotional tag. Mm. Now, ta emotional tagging is very useful to us in terms of evolution because if your ancestor, for example, looked at a rattlesnake that saw that pattern of diamond shapes on, the back, on its back and saw the rattle and heard the rattle, uh, it's really important to have that emotional tag of danger. This thing can kill you. Mm. And then you look at the garter snake or the garden snake, it's brown, looks totally different. And you know, that's, 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 that's harmless. So having an emotional tag on that snake with a rattle on its tail, that's extremely useful to you in terms of survival. So our brains are highly geared to doing this. Our, our optic nerves are sending 9 million pieces of information every second to wow. our visual cortex. Our ears, what we hear, what we feel through our proprioceptive abilities and touch is sending millions more. So our brain is getting this enormous amount of information from our senses all the time about the outside world, hunting for threats, hunting for what's wrong, hunting for the snake with the diamond back. And so um, in terms of our survival, that was extremely useful. Now, I haven't seen a rattlesnake for 15 years, but if my wife, says a word that annoys me, I'm reacting, that all that brain activity comes on steam, and now my emotional midbrain is getting highly active. So I, I now have an emotional tag to my wife saying this word, referring <laughs> to this part, of, this part of, of a lost vacation right. that I didn't like. So now I'm inappropriately attaching emotional tags to all kinds of things, because mm. that's exactly what the brain is designed to do. The trouble is it's dysfunctional now in a world in which we have no, no threats. And in fact, our brains doing that is a major threat to our survival. Because if you have high cortisol, high levels of cortisol in your body, high levels of adrenaline, high levels of stress hormones, that has a terrible biological toll on you. When your cortisol level goes up, your level of DHEA, goes down, and DHEA is your main cell repair and euthening hormone. But when you de-stress yourself, when you tap, research shows that cortisol drops dramatically. In one study that was published in a medical journal uh, about three months ago that I did about two years ago, we showed that in one week, one week of people tapping and applying this to themselves, their baseline for cortisol. Now, this is not just transitory cortisol. This is the actual baseline of their bodies producing every, every, every day. Their baseline dropped by 37% in a week of tapping. Wow. You do that, you drop your cortisol, that frees up all of those precursors to make DHEA. So that means your DHEA rises. Were they, they tapping out. like every morning? Like what was the actual formula? Were they tapping a couple times a day, only when they were getting stressed? Like what was the... <laughs> what was the I had them in a room and I was tapping with them from the moment before they brushed their teeth in the morning they were tapping and <laughs> they brushed their teeth at night and went to bed. They, I probably had them tapping, tapping in their sleep as well. So they were <laughs> one week retreat, 
and they tapped all the way through. We had, even if I was working with one person in front of the room in a circle, I had everyone in the circle tapping at the same time. They were tapping for hours and hours and hours every day. Gotcha. Yeah. No, it's it's really phenomenal. I mean, you know, you mentioned this uh, story, which I really enjoyed about the two sisters that were from, uh, you know, like the old primordial sisters like Grug and Ugg or something like that. <laughs> How, you know, one of them was this optimist and she's friendly, but, you know, unfortunately she got eaten by the lion because she wasn't quick to react. She wasn't the paranoid, you know, uh, you know, the caveman. And you multiply that paranoia, that constant overvigilance over the course of hundreds. <laughs> and the way when you put that, I was like, oh man, you're right. Like, wow, that's a, that's a lot of paranoia over the course of generations that we've evolved to be. You know, I mean, I, I've, I'm really fascinated by all this. I've read like books on all our negative tendencies, our like, habituation, our negative bias, all these things that we constantly are handicapped by. But when you put it that way, I was like, wow, that's, that's really profound to consider that the only people that really survived for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years were the ones that were hypervigilant uh, and, and, you know, basically, I mean, cynical to some sense, but just, you know, just aware of everything that's wrong. You know, yeah. that's, that's, that's what we're overcoming. And, but the, but the inspiring thing is that you can overcome. I mean, the whole idea of epigenetics, which again, to me is, I don't, know that much about it in a sense but i understand the principle that's that's phenomenal that we have i think that 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 changes the game understanding that first off that your emotions can change your gene expression over the course of your life you can actually you know like so i mean to what extent to what extent can your what genes are we talking about like are we talking about genes that regulate how you look do genes that regulate your metabolism like what what parts, at least do we know about, that can change over the course of time or can be influenced by your emotions? Like, for example, can people, again, change the way they even look or their metabolism based on how they feel over the course of, let's say, 20 or 30 years based on their character and habits and belief systems? Is that going to even reflect, you know, like how they look or digest food and things like that, obviously? But Absolutely. There, there are uh, around 400 studies reviewed in my book, Mind to Matter. One of them is looking at the difference in longevity between optimists and pessimists. Hmm. So pessimistic people have a pessimistic view of the world. Now, the world, we all live in the same world. Objectively, exactly the same things are happening to person A and person B. So the same, they live in the same, the same community. They have the same kinds of experiences. But one person has this pessimistic take on things of finding what's wrong. The other person has an optimistic take on, on things. And the longevity difference, so, so you, you may think that pessimistic, I'm going to have this negative thought right now. It won't really hurt me. Uh, it may not for that minute, but if you're thinking that negative thought over and over and over again, and it becomes a negative belief, negative worldview, it's going to do severe damage to your body over time. Mm. What, uh, speaking about cortisol, one of the Interesting things is people with high cortisol, their memory and learning centers in their brains start to shrink and their alarm part of their brains start to grow. And the part of the brain that regulates emotion starts to decompose, literally produces brain change in these people. And so you may not think that negative thoughts hurting you, but the difference in longevity between optimists and pessimists is eight years. Wow. Yep. So multiply a negative thought 
by an hour, by a week, by a month, by a year, by a decade, you're robbing yourself, if you're doing that habitually, of, on average, eight years of life. Now, that's just pessimism and optimism. That's not gratitude and love. If you throw in the studies of showing people who are loving and grateful and compassionate versus those who are not, the longevity disparity is much more than eight years. So you're literally robbing yourself of years when you could be playing with your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. You could be traveling the world. You could be enjoying your retirement. You could have a healthy uh, last 10, 20, 50 years of life. More, many more people now are living over 100. And so are those last 40 years after you quit work going to be full of joy or will they be short and will you live half of them hooked up to a ventilator in a nursing home? I mean, ask yourself these, these profound questions. And, you know, at your age, tutor, those are important. At my age, you're thinking very seriously about this stuff. And so it's having a huge effect. And in terms of the way you look, people look really youth youthful. Uh, people who are tapping, people who are meditating. There's a wonderful vid YouTube video I watched when I was working on Mind Matter of a, uh, a Tai Chi master. So at the end of each chapter, I obviously can't show you a YouTube video in, uh, in a book, but I had this thing called an extended play section yeah. at the end of each chapter. There I have links to videos, links to databases, links to web websites that will keep on talking about these important points. And this one video, I watched when I was, when I was writing Mind to Matter is of this Tai Chi master. He's 114 years old. Wow. 114. He's doing Tai Chi. He's doing all these things. It is definitely affecting your body. Another great master, George Leonard, who wrote the book Mastery. Uh, I met him and did a little bit of work with him when he was in his, about around 90, just before he turned 90. And as part of that, I went to a dojo where he'd been doing Aikido for the best part of 50 years. Wow. I watched these young men, now young as in maybe 35, 40 years old, running up to George Leonard and them doing Aikido together. And George Leonard, at the age of like 89 years old, these young guys rushing at him and him just lifting them up, whipping them around and slamming them down on the mat. Wow. <laughs> That's the kind of healthy you want to be at 90, you know, and that's the, that's the possibility. So that negative thought is costing you dearly in terms of longevity, in terms of health, in terms of pleasure in your life. It just saps you and kills you. And over time, that memory learning center, cortisol literally produces calcification. I'm talking about the stuff your bones and teeth are made on. Calcification of your memory learning centers. They shrink and they calcify, they atrophy as a result. Wow. Uh, people who meditate, people who, who tap, people already calm over time. Other parts of the brain atrophy, like the stress centers. Your memory learning centers grow while your stress centers start to wither away in your brain. So you're producing a long-term brain change by doing this and long-term effects on your body and your health. Yeah, you know, I think that really kind of points to this whole idea of coherence. And you know, this is what I want to kind of dive into a little bit, which is the, you know, there's this quote by Albert Einstein, which I love, and it kind of relates to this, but it really puts it in a very black and white way. So there's only two ways to live your life. One is as though everything is a miracle or as nothing is a miracle. And, uh, you know, I think in, in such a wide variety of responses that we have, such a wide variety of stimuli, things moving around us, at the end of the day, really, there's just two perspectives. There is that coherent perspective, 
or gratitude or fulfillment, whatever, you know, optimism, however you want to label it, but it's a coherent state. And then there's incoherence when we're not integrated, when we're some, you know, it's off. So uh, speak about that a little bit because you have a lot of good research that you talk about and, and you identify it very plainly about what it is and how we can get into it so that we can access all of that stuff, which is creativity, which is that flow state, those brain waves uh, that align with all the positive things. You know, I love what you talked about with the beta waves and all the different ways. I'm like, man, you know, I got to get like a little, I, I remember these little crowns you put on and they're supposed to stimulate <laughs> different. I'm like, I need to get one of those flow state things. I can just trigger myself into flow state every time so I can <laughs> create whenever I want. Yeah, and, and you know those those like like I talk about the muse headband in the book because the muse headband helps you do that helps you get into that flow state, but the goal is to get there and know what that feels like in your body. When you know how it feels in your body, you actually don't need the headband anymore. So mm -hmm. headband is just a crutch initially to get you there. Once you know how to get there, you can get there spontaneously. But yeah, uh, those those tools are are very useful. Putting yourself in those flow states is useful, and. I had two friends who I, uh, I write about in the book, and I, I make the one anonymous, and um, I call her Jill. But Jill was just a genuinely sweet and wonderful human being, and she had visions. She had visions of the kind of world she wanted to create. She had visions of the kind of nonprofit work she wanted to do. She had visions of her, her, her life, the life of her children, the life of her community, and she was an incredibly inspiring person. But it struck me, knowing Jill for several years, that I don't exaggerate here, but I won't say nothing, but virtually nothing that she ever dreamed about ever came true. She always had a story of inspiration, but none of it ever happened. She didn't manifest any of it. She hardly manifested any, anything she ever wanted. So I, I, I look at people like that. I think, well, if this manifestation stuff works, if thoughts do become things, why don't they work for Jill? Then my other example of someone who they do work for is Jack Canfield. And Jack Canfield wrote the book, The Success Principles. He co-authored the Chicken Soup series. And Jack, who's a close friend of mine, like if Jack uses old-fashioned three-by-five index cards and writes his affirmations down on those and reads them every morning and repeats them back to himself. And you, know, you ask yourself, why is this guy who's one of the most successful authors in history still doing affirmations, doing them that way? But if, if Jack Canfield has a goal or an affirmation that he wants to see happen, you can bet your life that's going to happen. So what's the difference between Jack and a Jill? Why, why do some people have all these visions and they don't happen? Other people have visions and they do happen. So I, 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 really, I didn't know when I began writing, writing Mind to Matter. I was really mystified, puzzled by this conundrum. And so a lot of the questions in the book, I mean, the book has kind of a, has kind of a gee whiz energy throughout. It's like, oh my goodness, would you believe this? Because a lot of it, when I began to dig into the science of the stuff, Tudor, my, my mind was just reeling with what the science tells us about this. And I, I, I was determined to find the answer to the difference between a Jack and a Jill. They're both doing the same stuff. They're both having these visualizations and affirmations and keeping their index cards. And for one person, they're happening, I mean, they're scoring 10 out of 10. One person's scoring maybe one out of 10, maybe zero out of 10. Mm. What is the difference? And the difference turned out to be mental coherence. And mental coherence is brain coherence, and brain coherence is heart coherence, and heart coherence is body coherence. And so I looked at EEGs of people like Jack, 
and compare them with EEGs of people like Jill. And so an EEG is a series of squiggles on a screen. You see alpha, beta, and theta, and delta, and all the brain waves, and different frequencies, and different electrodes, and 19 different areas of their brain. And so Jill's brain waves are moving along kind of randomly like this. Jack's brain waves are moving along in step. Mm. And he has a coherent mind and a coherent brain. <clears throat> and you bring yourself to that in eco meditation, you bring yourself into, <clears throat> first of all, heart coherence, which you can do very simply with one of the steps in eco meditation where you breathe in a certain rhythm, automatically you go into heart coherence. But then there's a visualization exercise in eco meditation that puts you into deep coherence. Now you're in body coherence and brain coherence. And now all of your brain waves are in step, in sync. When you, when you seek and affirm and visualize and you're now in touch with the non-local universe, you're in your, in your local space but connected with the non-local universe, you're coherent. When you are having thoughts in that space, that's a jack. That's manifestor. They have coherence. When you have all the same thoughts, but you're not, not in coherence, nothing happens. In one amazing experiment done at HeartMath, they had people visualize DNA changing, and the DNA was in flasks in the same room. And you can measure with spectrography exactly how tightly the DNA is curled. So it's a double helix, it's in a curly, curly shape, and sometimes that's more, more twisted, tighter than others. And so they said to people in this experiment, they said, okay, there's a flask of DNA. We want you to intend that this flask of DNA twists more tightly, and we can measure that before and after. So people sat there, intended that the DNA twists more tightly, and nothing happened. Then they put themselves into coherence, and when they put themselves into coherence, then the DNA did twist more, more, more tightly. Then the experimenter said, wow, that's cool. Okay, now sit there, get into coherence. We want to see you untwist the DNA. And sure enough, when they were in coherence, they then could untwist the DNA. They then put three vials there, and they said to them, now get into coherence, and we want you to, to affect the DNA only in the middle flask, not in the two on the side, and in that coherent state, that's exactly what happened. Now think about this. They're at a distance of maybe 15 feet from the, from the, the flask, and they can change DNA with their minds when they are in heart coherence. Wow. The, the fi in the final step of this long series of ex experiments that they did, they then put the three flasks of DNA 50 miles away and when those meditators were in coherence, when they were in that, that heart coherent state, they could affect the DNA in the middle vial, in the middle flask, leaving the two on the sides untouched, even at a distance of 50 miles. That is the power wow. of our mind to create. That's, I mean, this is phenomenal stuff, you know, and you start reading these research uh, about, even when you were talking about, I think in Japan, God, it was one of those, uh, I don't know if it was a Qigong leader, but it was definitely some somewhere in Japan and they put him like 1500 kilometers away or something like that. I'm like, wow, like what the heck is going on? I mean, you know, the, there's so many questions that you have is that, you know, first off with, so there's heart coherence and brain coherence or mind coherence. When you measured Jack, for example, and you found, okay, he's got coherent brain waves. 
versus when you measured Jill and she had incoherent brainwaves. Now, the question I have when I, when I see that is, okay, wait a minute. If Jack just came in the office, got those, you know, you know, thing, the electrodes on his head, was, does that indicate, because you sampled him at a random time of the day, like, was, okay, what's, I'm trying to phrase this question, but basically, like, he didn't have any preparation before that day, like, to basically say, okay, let me get in a coherent state. Like, that just was more of a, was there a residual effect? Like, was he, based on the things that he'd been doing and thinking and behaving to get himself in a regular coherent mental state, now let's say he has an appointment with you in the morning, there's a residual effect where he tends to be more coherent throughout his day. Whereas, for example, Jill, who doesn't have, let's say, a habit of doing that, um, you know, she's going to be sampled at any time of the day and it'll be just incoherent in general. So does there, is there a residual effect for, for being in a coherent state? Are the things we can do for ourselves is kind of build up like a muscle kind of or... Yeah, and so uh, I played baseball a few times. I'm not very good at baseball, but I can I can generally connect with the ball. And so I'm focused, very, very focused when someone throws me the ball, and I can, with a great deal of, of concentration, I can hit the ball. And so I'm using all of the top part of my brain to do that with my prefrontal cortex, my memory and learning centers in the, in the hippocampus. All of these are engaged in doing that. But if I were a baseball player and I were practicing many hours a day, then gradually that ability starts to act activate a part of the brain called the striatum and the bottom of the brain, the basal ganglia. Now, when that pro batter who's been playing the game for 10 years, practicing many hours a day, it's no longer up here. It's engraved in neural pathways in his basal ganglia. And now he is able to interpret all of these signals from his senses, <clears throat> watch the ball, uh, watch the pitcher, way before the pitcher releases the ball, he mm. knows exactly where that's gonna go, and his arm is, is moving to strike the ball even before the, the, it's left the pitcher's hand. So that's the, the magic of, of practice. So what happens to meditators is the same thing. Initially it's effort, initially it's work, initially it's focus, initially you Really, you, you, you hardly can do it without a guided visualization. You need a guided meditation. Someone talking in your ear saying, now do this, now do this, then do that. So that's why all my initial meditations are guided. But once you've done it for 500 hours, 1,000 hours, 5,000 hours, now it's your basal ganglia. So now a jack walks into the, into the lab to get hooked up, and he knows how to do this. He can do it already. It doesn't have to take him a long time. It's part of that brain structure, it's automatic. He closes his eyes, he's there in a few seconds. So that's the goal. And most meditators are really inefficient. Uh, they sit down, they close their eyes, their mind starts to wander. They may sit there for an hour and just have their mind wandering all the time. They haven't even meditated at all. Mm. Uh, experienced person, they sit down there, close their eyes within a few seconds. Tibetan masters, they close their, actually, uh, this is a cool thing. In some MRI research, when they tell Tibetan masters, okay, now we've got you all hooked up to the MRI. In five minutes, we're gonna ring the bell and we want you to focus on compassion. And we'll sound the gong when it's time to start the meditation. When those masters are told that they will be meditating on compassion in five minutes, their brains go there 
before they begin the meditation. You want to develop those brain structures, mm -hmm. hardwire them. In chapter one of Mind to Matter, I have the story of one guy who learned this. He was a TV journalist, never meditated before, went into a lab, they used an MRI to measure his, his brain, every brain region, gave him a whole battery of psychological tests. After that, he began to meditate regularly and be mindful. Eight weeks later, they put him back in the lab, hooked him back up to the MRI, and the part of his brain that governs emotional regulation, it's called the dentate gyrus, right in the center of the brain, it connects to different parts of the brain, it helps you regulate your irritation, resentment, annoyance, fear, guilt, it just regulates all those emotions by touching different parts of the brain and synchronizing their activity. His dentate gyrus, that, that nerve plexus, grew by 22.8% in just eight weeks. Wow. That's how fast neural remodeling was. What was he doing? He was doing the eco meditation every day or? No, he was doing mindful meditation every day. Hmm. And not just once a day, he was living a mindful life. But after never having meditated in just eight weeks, 22.8% growth in that one part of his brain, wow. three or 4% growth in other parts of his brain as well. So basically what that translates to is being able to handle uh, harder emotional situations or more effectively not get so easily triggered uh, right off the bat. Standing in line at the grocery store, your kid's saying something that annoys you, being stuck in traffic, uh, getting, having, being fired, um, having a fight with someone at work or your spouse or all, all these ways in which we can get triggered if you can control your emotions, you then have an ability to, to, again, switch from optimism to pessimism, to switch from uh, resentment to compassion, if you have emotional regulation. And now, we're not talking about theoretical or mental emotional regulation. We're talking about a 22.8% growth in the hardware structure mm. of your brain to do with emotional regulation. So that's why that, that story is in chapter one. That would inspire people to read Mind to Matter. You are remodeling your brain. If it takes you two weeks to read the book, you've already been beyond the process of brain remodeling. That's, that's phenomenal. I mean, with the, with the brain coherence and the heart coherence, really quick, what I understood is that with heart coherence, you basically kind of through breathing and relaxation, you, you get back into that coherent state. You know, it's not, it's not an irregular rhythm. What is the difference between brain coherence and heart coherence? Like how can you, it seems like brain coherence is a little extra few steps to get there, to get to, to practice that brain coherence. So what, what is the difference between those two? If you can expand on that, obviously there's different brain waves. You talked about the beta being kind of that, that monkey mind and, and all the different, uh, you know, healing brain waves that were related to healing events and, and healing energy. That was really interesting. So how do we, how do we get into brain coherence versus heart coherence? Like what's the difference? Is, is one a little more procedural than the other or? Yeah, it's really cool. And the answer is we get into heart coherence and our hearts bring our brains into coherence. Mm. And the electromagnetic field of our heart is thousands of times stronger than that of our brain. And so the heart sends out this enormously strong signal. And you can detect this when a person is three yards away in, in the room. If you and I are standing six yards apart, our fields are interacting, our heart fields are interacting. And so the heart brings the brain into coherence. It then brings the digestive tract into coherence. It then brings various kinds of cell processes into coherence. But the crucial... Uh, the crucial initial factor is being in heart coherence. Hmm. 
That's, that is phenomenal. I mean, I, I remember um, we were playing around with my buddies a long time ago. We did the, the dousing rods or whatever. You know, we wanted to see if they worked. <laughs> and, you know, part of me was still skeptical, but it was like, you know, we would, we would channel an idea, like whether it's a negative emotion or a positive emotion. And you could see them literally reacting to your heart magnetic field, you know, and, and you know, he's not shaking his hand. I'm like, man, this is crazy. And started looking it up. And like you said, the heart has a giant uh, torus, a big, you know, magnetic field around it that we're continually encoding information. And it's like, when you start getting present to that, like even when I'm talking to people now or, or, you know, working with them, smiling to them, you can, you can, you know, the whole idea of empathy, you know, that's what I love about this stuff because all the stuff that we traditionally think of as kind of this, um, you know, abstract stuff, there's actually science that there's a hard science behind, you know, so when we talk about empathy and empathizing with somebody, we're really, what we're doing is exchanging information through these magnetic fields constantly, you know, like, um, that's why I think going out in nature, uh, I, I try to do that every day to some extent. I, and the other day I realized, I'm like, you know, trees have this magnetic field too. And there's this something about, I almost call it like emotional or soul scrubbing, you know, like when you walk through <laughs> When you walk through a park, the thing that I got was you get, you have, you know, you have a, like if you have a negative state in your mind and your emotions, it is, it's constantly being poured out through that magnetic field. It's changing the code basically that's coming through. So there's a certain vibration to it. And as you walk through the forest or the trees or the park or whatever, trees don't have any of that BS that we deal with. They're, they're pure, they're neutral. And so it's almost like they kind of, just like how they filter the air, they help their magnetic fields. Like when you walk by them, they kind of like, you know, they brush away all that gunk. And then suddenly you literally feel better without having to think about anything differently, without having to do anything, literally just being in nature for five, 10, 20 minutes. Um, and it reminded me of this, this uh, I don't have the name of it, but it's a, it's a forest in Japan because, you know, as you know, probably Japan has like one of the highest, uh, you know, work burnout rates, suicide rates with that kind of stuff. So I, I think that they were prescribing, literally they were prescribing people to go into the forest as a therapy <laughs> to just do nothing, just go there. And literally it was like, like you said, reducing their cortisol and all this stuff by phenomenal degrees. So there, there is something to this magnetic field. And when we're communicating with one another, what, you know, you talk a lot about fields you, in, in the idea that the field is, and this, this part is just phenomenal to me. The field, everything has fields. So you can maybe talk a little bit about that. But the field is what creates the matter. It's not the other way around. So, yeah. <laughs> Experimentally by a brilliant scientist at Harvard, who I talk about in the early stages of the book, in the 1920s and 1930s, he was looking at the ability of animals that can regenerate limbs, like salamanders, to regrow those limbs. And what he found was that when the salamander had a missing limb and then regrew the limb, that even though the salamander had no limb physically, the energy field of the limb was still there, intact. Wow. As the limb regrew physically, it grew along the template that was present in the electromagnetic field, which was already there. So the physical body was being generated along the lines that were of force already present in the energy field. He then uh, did things like he did a, a landmark study near the end of his life 
which was just brilliant. I think he published this in 1946 or 48. And he looked at women and their, uh, the, the charge on their uteruses. And then someone ought to develop uterine cancer. And what he found was he, that he could tell the difference between a cancerous uterus and uh, a normal uterus just by the electrical charge on the uterus. Mm-hmm. But the incredible thing he found was that he found that some of the women who tested normal, when he tested them, that they, if they were tested normal initially, they did not go on to develop uterine cancer, but some had no uterine cancer. So they looked normal, but their energy signature was one of cancer. Then, maybe years later, they developed physical cancer, even though they had zero cancer when first tested. If their energy field showed that cancer signature, later on they developed physical cancer. So he was sort of an amazing pioneer in showing again that energy precedes matter. Yeah, no, that, that, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That was literally one of the ones I wanted to ask you about, which was the, the cancer being in the field as, an informa- as a piece of information before it actually manifested in the real world. So, I mean, God, there's so many questions as a result of these studies. I mean, the first one I have is, you know, you have the, it's like the chicken and the egg, you know, which came first, the field or the, you know, because essentially, okay, we, I get that. I get that the field is the template that this grows into, but then what created the field, you know? So is it another field that created that? Like how, how does that work? And then the second question is, okay, I get the idea of the information of cancer being in the field and then it manifests later. So now how do we, what's the impact on our day-to-day thoughts and, and how do we like, okay, let's say I have a negative thought, you know, is that going to start the cancer thing going? And then how long does that stay before it gets physical? Like what is the impact on our day-to-day thoughts, you know, with, yeah. with these fields? I think it's, it's cumulative. I think it's a habit of thought that mm-hmm. does one stray thought here and there is going to maybe shift you biologically a little bit for a few moments, but um, our body is meant to handle spikes of stress. If I, for example, uh, were to be uh, walking in the park and there was this really vicious looking dog that broke away from its owner and ran ran after me, then I would have a natural rise in cortisol and adrenaline. But our body then deals with that very quickly. Within about 20 minutes, it dis- disassembles those cortisol molecules, we're back down to, to normal. We're meant to be able to handle those spikes. Mm. But if I then say, for example, start to worry about the next time a dog might attack me mm. or talk about the dog and get all emotional about it, now I'm driving my cortisol up. So now it's not just a 20 minute cycle of getting high, high cortisol, high adrenaline, running away, fight or flight, and then back to baseline. Now I'm pushing my cortisol up over time day by day by day by day by day, mm. now I'm having those negative effects in my body. So what you think about is much more able to hurt you than what actually happens to you. There are people who have horrendous things happen to them and they're resilient. I talk about post-traumatic growth in the book. If you look, for example, because I've done so much work with veterans, look at, look at the about two and a half million American servicemen and women who've been through Iraq and Afghanistan over the last close to 20 years and you find that about two-thirds of them come back to combat duty, and they, they deal with it. I mean, this wasn't pleasant, but they, they, they have the resilience to deal with it. But a quarter to, two-thirds, to a third of them get PTSD, 
flashbacks, nightmares, and so on. Often they get PTSD years after the events. And again, that's because they are replaying these events in their minds and they're triggering that high cortisol, high adrenaline day after day after day with those memories, flashbacks, nightmares, and other symptoms of PTSD. So it's those things over time that hurts our body, not having one or two of them that just come and go. You know, I want to jump back to this idea of coherence and talking about, because this kind of plays in, I guess, to incoherence too, and in creating, you know, basically what we want out of life. I mean, you know, when you, when we talk about, okay, I'm going to get in a coherent state. And then when I'm in that state, I can, I mean, there's science literally that proves, okay, we can shape matter when we're in a coherent state. So now the question is, and we've brought this up a little bit before in the conversation, which is, to what extent, you know, is that? I mean, you know, we, there's so much profound evidence, even from like, like we said, like 1500 kilometers distance, you know, they were able to, I mean, the whole idea of the, that you mentioned like the weak force basically, and then he kind of reduced the, uh, the decay rate on some of those, um, gosh, what was it? It was like uh, the smoke detectors or whatever. Like they he reduced the, the decay rate, the chemical decay rate on, on uh, one of those, uh, materials anyway but that was like wow you know our mind is able to literally break the the rule of <laughs> uh of law fundamental forces of physics so there are yeah. four forces of physics gravity electromagnetism the strong nuclear force that keeps atoms together keeps all the, the charged particles and atoms together and the weak nuclear force of radioactive decay and there's evidence showing that human beings with their consciousness are able to literally shift all four of those four forces. And these are, these should, I mean, theoretically, th th those, are, those these are the fundamental laws of physics. You should not be able to shift them. In one study, for example, I won't tell the whole story, but this healer in a randomized controlled trial of healing mice who had cancer, they, they showed that at the random intervals where the healer sent healing energy to these diseased mice, the electromagnetic field in that room shifted by over 20%, and it did not shift in the room of cancerous mice to which he was not sending healing intentions. So we're wow. all four forces of physics with this thing up here. That is amazing, my friend. I, I know you have to go, so we will just wrap it up really quick. Where can they get the book, Mind to Matter? It's a phenomenal book, guys. I have... You can check my recommended reading list. I put it on there. It's it's first right now. <laughs> it's, I've read a lot of really cool books. This is up there. It's it's one of the best that I've ever read. I don't say that lightly. So well done. Uh, where can they get more info about you, about the book, maybe about eco-meditation? Yeah, the best way is just to go to the website mindtomatter.com. And there, there's a link to my live workshops, live appearances. There is a link to all kinds of free resources, including seven free eco-meditation tracks, which are wonderful to listen to. So also, I, I, one thing I, I need from people right now is I need Amazon reviews. So if you love the book, if you read part of the book, you like the book, read the whole book, if, if, if it meant something to you, please leave me a review on Amazon because I'm really, I'm really focused on seeing people share on Amazon. That's the way more people know. So yeah, for uh, sure. um, and then please leave a review as well. Super. I'll go do that after the interview. It's okay, been, a, thank been you. a great book <laughs> so far. I've only halfway through, but it's amazing. I'll still write a review. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for your time, sir. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you. We'll have to reconnect again. This was, gosh, this, I feel like we just barely tapped the, the tip of the iceberg. So <laughs> you just scratched the surface. I love yeah. you. Again. Good luck with everything you're doing. You're doing some great work. So pleasure to meet you. And uh, oh, one more question, actually, really quick. What are you grateful for? I always ask my guests, what are you, what are you grateful for right now? <laughs> you know, this might seem like a very simple thing, but I meditate every morning. I wake up, open my eyes, meditate, and tune into that non-local mind. And Tudor, what I'm grateful for is simply breath. Hmm. I feel the breath flowing in and out. I'm grateful to be alive, to be breathing. I, I, I sometimes I actually I'm in tears afterwards because of just the, the, the grace of living, having a body, being able to speak and think and have right livelihood and do do what I do. And hmm. I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude just to be here. So just breathing, walking, having a body, having love. Uh, it's just a privilege to be a human being and be alive. It's also one of the most exciting periods in history to be alive. So absolutely, I'm grateful. I'm thankful, and I'm overwhelmed with that love every morning in meditation. Awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, it's been a wonderful time, my friend. We'll see you. We'll see you soon, and have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much. <laughs> see you later. Bye. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Dawson Church, author of Mind to Matter. What an amazing, amazing book. I'll tell you right now, at the time that I'm recording this episode, I've only been through half of it, and it's absolutely blown my mind. I mean, uh, I'm not getting anything by promoting it, honestly. It's, it's, it's just a really beautiful, amazing book that I want to share with you. And he's an amazing, amazing guy, really cool, uh, very, very profound research that he's put together in this book. That really, and it's in a relatable way. That's why I absolutely love it. I absolutely love this interview because it really uh, sheds light on an important thing, which is, hey, we create our reality. This whole show, most of the episodes when I'm talking about taking action towards what you love, it's really about that idea that our minds can create our realities. Our minds are powerful. You are a powerful, powerful battery of creation. You are that flow of energy of the universe that you see around you. That is also your part of that. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we we associate to like woo-woo kind of new age stuff. But in reality, this is true. Like this is what science is showing us more and more. And in the book, Mind to Matter, you've, he has dozens and dozens of case studies and fascinating research on the reality. And it gets you really present to like, holy smokes, I need to be accountable for my thoughts. I mean, that's, that's such a huge thing, you know? So when we talk about taking action, uh, towards doing what you love and, and creating the life you love, you got to, one of those things is mastering your emotions, mastering your thoughts. I mean, you know, you can't control your thoughts, but mastering how you respond to your thoughts and to your emotions is a huge thing. And, you know, Dr. Dawson, uh, church has a ton of really useful research and also the eco meditation and all that kind of stuff in the, I'm going to make a post for this. So uh, check it out at danceoflife.com slash podcast. I'm going to actually have a post with all the useful links uh, about this. So he's got, you know, the EFT universe where you're going to check out all his, um, you know, the tapping manual, basically how to do the tapping, how to do the the morning routine, how to get some some bonuses, how to check out the book and all the uh, extended play stuff. So all that stuff's going to be in the post. Just check out again, danceoflife.com slash podcast. That's where the, the blog posts are. And so I really hope you enjoyed this episode. You know, my goal is to really bring as many uh, inspiring guests into your life as possible, you know, and, and to give you the tools to be able to do those three things that we continually talk about, which is, you know, create 
a life that you love, be able to uh, live that transformed life, you know, to continually grow and change and have those breakthroughs and breakdowns that we all have. And then also ultimately, you know, be grateful and, and enjoy the ride there. doesn't matter what you achieve. I say this a lot, but if you can't appreciate the journey there, then, uh, you know, it's all for naught in that sense. So I hope you found value in this episode. If you like it, share it with your friends, share it for anybody that might get some value out of this. I think it's a, a phenomenal message. And my goal is that whenever I run across people like this that are really contributing to society to really help them get their wood out there, get the word out to you to change your life, to impact it in a positive way. So, you know, that's pretty awesome. If you enjoy this kind of stuff, make sure you subscribe, share it again with your friends. Let me know any ideas for future episodes. If you feel that you would like to be on the show, if you have something to contribute, have an inspiring story, you're doing great work. I would love to have you. Let me know. I'm always down. You know, I'm open. You know, you just email me tutor at danceoflife.com. That's spelled T-U-D-O-R at danceoflife.com. And other than that, I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful day. Be grateful and remember the power of your thoughts. episodes and weekly content, stay connected at danceoflife.com.